and I don't think that's me, like my career. I think if an average police officer in the hood over the course of a 20 year career will see all these horrible things. They will deal with them and it's like, uh, that's why we you know, only can really open up to other cops. Like, they, we had gotten to the point as a law enforcement community where we acknowledged, like, hey, you're going to have these mentally and emotionally challenging things. Like, we're going to prepare you for, you know, the taking of a human life when you build that file folder for, these are the criteria in which I'm willing to kill another human being. Um, you know, if we meet all these criteria, I'm willing to kill you. And I'm fine mentally and emotionally, spiritually with that. I open the door. And I'm confronted with a guy pulling the biggest silver semi-automatic handgun I've ever seen in my life. He's laid down in the kind of in the floorboards, and he's pulling out a silver handgun. But I've got that really bad sight picture where it's like my backstop is human beings, and I care a lot about Dusty and the baby, and they're all in my backstop. So the dude comes out on me, and I kind of grab him like by that scruff of your neck area and I'm pulling him out as I'm shooting him. The great lie is whatever it is, you're going through it completely alone. And the great lie as a cop is that I'm going through this alone, my family doesn't get it, my friends don't get it. I can't be emotionally vulnerable with them because then they're gonna judge me. And that's that great lie is that I have to compartmentalize this, wall it off, it's gonna get worse and worse and worse until it finally boils over. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast, brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal, and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome to the ATO Bridge and the Divide podcast. I'm Joe, I'm with my partner Josh Hortel, and we have a special guest co-host today. She couldn't get enough of us from her interview, so she'd come back for more. Misty Van Curen, my classmate from Best of the Blue, Class 252, Randy is also here. I'm really excited to talk about today's guest. His organization has been in business for over 200 years. He's a former Dallas police officer, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, retired pro MMA fighter, incredible husband and father, also a great friend. I'd like to welcome U.S. Marshal Chris White. Chris, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Joe. The U.S. Marshals, um, not to be mistaken for the Marshals Department Store, started in 1789. Chris, you're only our fourth recording we've done so far, and you're in town from Mississippi, right? Yes, sir. I want to thank you for coming in and, and, and helping with this. Uh, I've been to get you on. And you're also a former Southeast Patrol officer, and I promise that three of the four that we've reported, they've all been Southeast, former Southeast officers, and 
I promise we are going to have on other people than the Southeast people. Yeah, people start listening, they're going to think there's a preference here and we're not allowed to uh, have any other people on here other than Southeast people, including the hosts. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, exactly. But we, we do have Randy. Uh, he's from Southwest. But Oh, there you go. Yeah, he's the, he's the token Southwest officer. Uh, but I'm not going to make any apologies for coming out and saying that Southeast produces some badass cops and people. And I think you're one of them. That being said, how was your trip down here? It was good. We got in Friday, about a six-hour drive. Uh, did family yesterday. Yesterday afternoon, I went down to Grandview, um, which is about 30 minutes south of Fort Worth, and assisted a guy named Raul Martinez, who's a uh, fieldcraft um survival instructor they put on they were doing their gunfighter level one and cqb and they're doing gunfighter two but in the afternoons uh raul does a he runs his own company called rogue methods and they have a close contact um gunfighter class which is all gunfighting within the clinch within like the engaged you know two three yards and in gunfighting um so it's, it's pretty cool to come do that that video you sent me that was a uh... Like a hardcore weapon retention mm-hmm. video. What, what what does I see in there? Explain that. Um, so he'll start. You know, the the one he did yesterday is about like a three or four hour seminar. He's got a full one and two day program. Um, and so they go through. They do range time first, which is like three yards and in. Just they, they train civilians and law enforcement, um, which is kind of cool to get the two groups together because you have a lot of the people in the the gun community um, engaging with law enforcement and vice versa. You've got anywhere from new shooters to like some very very high level competitive shooters. And then you know we had a Houston PD uh, female officer with us yesterday, all the way up to like I've seen you know SWAT guys go through and do it. Um, so it's cool to have that those groups together. Um, and then it's really exposure. You know, you'll have competent people, competent fighters, and you'll have competent gun handlers. And mixing the two of them together is is cool to see because, like, I consider myself a fairly experienced martial artist. But, you know, when you have four hands on a gun fighting over it, a lot of that stuff goes out the window. And a lot of good gun handling goes out the window when you're inducing malfunctions from four hands on the gun. And, you know you get a malfunction and the magazine drops out and then you're wrestling over a gun with one round in the chamber. You know, you can strike people at the same time. It's it's a pretty hardcore introduction into that um, situation, which is we don't train that in law enforcement appropriately at all. And civilians obviously don't train that. So it's cool to get exposure to that. No, that, that video you sent me, that was hardcore. That like a, I would blow out a knee if that happened. That looked... Really rough. Anybody have get injured to that thing? No, no, and that's one of the cool Surprise. things is nobody's ever really gotten injured. Um, nobody's ever gotten. I don't know if that's me. Okay, uh, nobody's gotten injured so far. Knock on wood in the program. Um, it's cool. All right, coming from a different part of the country, <clears throat> growing up in the northeast mm-hmm. uh, of the United States, how much of it was a culture shock to come to Dallas, Texas, go through our academy, and then just show up out of the academy going to southeast Dallas, the south Dallas. Yeah, so I grew up right outside of um, Hartford, <clears throat> Connecticut, uh, in a very suburban, like, safe. Um, I, I consider myself very lucky to grow up, you know, in a, a two-parent household where, you know, we weren't rich by any stretch, but we had everything. You know, we never 
were worried that there was going to be food on the table, so I consider myself very blessed for that. Um, coming down to Dallas after I graduated college, um, I had a brief stint in like social work, and I hated it. Um, so I ended up coming down to the Dallas Police Department. They were hiring super aggressively at the time. That was back in like '05 when they were doing the $10,000 sign-on bonus, which was awesome. Um, so I was able to like pay for LASIK and you know pay off some bills and stuff. Um, came down there and immediately after the academy there was like a little gang of us that went down to southeast all all together you know and it's funny looking back on it now you think like we, we were super hopeful they'd let us go down there like the four or five of us like i hope we can all stay together and go to southeast and they're like yeah of, of course you know if you want to go down there please careful what you want. <laughs> please go down there um so we went down there and you know it was a uh, very culturally and socioeconomically different uh, world than I was used to. Um, so it was a very fast learning curve. I loved it. Um, you know, I joked that it was like I would imagine patrolling like an occupied territory is because you just like this is as much as you want to engage with that community, there's times like there's a lot of pe good people in that community, but there's a segment of the community that does not welcome you there. Um, and so you're going down there and you're learning a lot. You're learning how to engage with different people groups, um, different, you know, socioeconomic groups. Um, people are very different from the way I was raised. And it was great. Um, I think there's, a, you know, I rode with uh, one of my first trainers was a, a large African-American guy. And one night we pulled over a car and popped the trunk. There's a frozen raccoon and they're staring up at me. And, he, you know, I kind of jumped back. I'm like... Pleasant Grove? Yeah, I'm like, Stan, why is there a raccoon in the trunk? He goes, rookie, they eat it. Mm. And I'd never, like, been exposed to, you know, people that eat raccoon before. Was that Stan McDaniel? It was. Yeah, okay. it was. He was a big dude. Very big. What was your favorite part of working DPD? Um, definitely the people. You know, the people, we had a very close-knit group there and you had to be close-knit because we trusted each other with our lives um, and also you know just uh, with the type of aggressive police work we did down there uh, you had to you know have a cohesive unit because we were doing a very aggressive style of policing um, you know so you had to trust people with your safety but also like hey making sure we're all doing this legally the correct way because um, I'm way too pretty for prison uh, you are Chris, I got a question for you. Yes, sir. So, <clears throat> several there, there's a lot of people in the police department as they hire on. Some people that's their their goal set. Right? Mm -hmm. They just want to be a police officer, and others they uh, they get there. They use that as a stepping stone to go elsewhere, whether it be another department, whether it be federal, whether it be anything else. Um, did you always have a desire to to go to the federal system, or mm -hmm. was that something that you just kind of thought it up as you were going, or what 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 attracted you to that, and what drove you to that? I would say no. Um, I don't know that I ever intended to become a cop, period. Um, but I also believe firmly that uh, the Lord gives people a calling um, and just like a, a niche they're supposed to be in. And either we can kind of be obedient to that and we live that out or not. Um, so I don't know that I intended to be a cop, but I ended up being one. Uh, I certainly didn't intend to go to the federal side of the house, but um, I joined... DPD on what I consider like the tail end of a, you know, very appreciative, um, 
community and department and kind of saw it change over the years uh, politically and you know socially kind of the, the wind shifted um, and when that became apparent I started looking at you know outside employment options as far as like being able to support a family on one income my wife and I both wanted to you know have a um, a single income family so she can stay home and you know work full-time raising our kids um, but no my first interaction with the marshal service was super negative actually um, we were down there with and I told Joe I'd tell this story um, when Robert Sparks killed that household full of people mm-hmm. um, I think he like raped one or two of the females and killed like an entire family, like two or three kids. Yeah, he left one and one victim like alive in the closet. Um, so tell the story. Yeah, and so he was running around South Dallas in a van, like a handicap van or something. Um, and I remember Chris Wood got behind that vehicle. And we were at the station. I don't know if you were with me, but we all like literally everyone probably in both. I don't know if Channel 7 had started then, um, but everyone was going. Um, it was like a low-speed chase because he was a handicap van, and we went all over, I want to say Oak Cliff. I well, say, yeah, I went off to Oak Cliff around yeah, the like that Mindview area. Yeah. South Dallas, like Oak Cliff line, um, and there was a pig pile at the end when he finally terminated in a uh, cul-de-sac. And so my partner and I had, you know, we were like, third car and we made kind of a boneheaded decision to like try and parallel to cut him off when he turned uh, and it didn't work out for us so we pulled up like probably eighth or ninth car when it terminated and there was a pig pile and they got him into custody and then out of nowhere like a black blacked out Durango pulls through someone's front yard pulls up and like we got it from here guys and takes the prisoner from Chris which I thought was unfortunate that he would allow that um but my impression of them was not positive because it's like, no, you didn't catch him. Like, that was Chris's arrest. Right. You should never take, like, he should have the privilege of walking him into Lou Starrett right. having made that arrest. But it didn't work out that way. So, anyways, not a positive first impression of them. One thing, uh, during that chase, I was part of that chase, and that was a crazy, everybody, I think they had a badge and a gun, and then probably some that didn't even have a gun were in chase yeah. with that guy. Uh, Chris actually took fire from the suspect, yeah. whenever he first got yeah. behind him, right? He was shooting back, like, out a window. I don't think he was aiming, per se. I yeah. think it was just a, like a, well, see we... if I can dust him off me kind of thing. Wow. Did your outlook on policing change from what you per- first perceived it to be until how it ended up for you? Um, I think that's, it's constantly changing. You know, uh, you see a lot of folks... And it's hard in this job not to get um, kind of bogged down with the negativity. You know, we we interact with a very small subset of the community that's that top tier, especially now that top tier violent offender. Um, And in policing in general, you see people on their worst days, and you see a lot of the worst people on their worst days. Um, You also see a lot of good people, don't get me wrong, but, um, you know, it's a very corrosive, negative environment. And so learning how to deal with that, you know, there's, there's... uh, hills and valleys, and navigating that is always a challenge, uh, especially trying to stay, you know, being a positive hard worker is it's challenging. You talk about the transition, so I see here you, you went through the academy in 
you joined the Marshal Service in 2010, mm -hmm. and your first assignment was in New Mexico. So, were you, you were married at the time, right? No, um, I was engaged when I when I got picked up with the Marshal Service. I was visiting my brother, uh, in he lived in Manhattan at the time. So I remember I was sitting at a restaurant with him. Got the call to go. I was sitting with my now wife, um, and I think that was like August. I think we got engaged either a few weeks later. It was one of those things where it's like, hey, if we're going to do this, we're not going to do a long-distance relationship because I know how that's going to end. Um, so we got probably engaged in September and married the following uh, March. Um, so we were engaged pretty much the entirety of the time. I was in Georgia doing their training academy. I moved out to New Mexico. I was there a few weeks um, drove back to Dallas. We got married on a Friday night because it was cheaper. Um, and then I think Saturday night we stayed in a hotel downtown. It was a haunted hotel. Um, cool. And then Sunday morning we got up and drove out to New Mexico. So we got to, you know, experience the, the fun of being newlyweds and navigating, you know, a new marriage uh, in a city where we really knew nobody, which was awesome in hindsight. Because you're from the from the personal, so personal perspective that the other would be your professional perspective. So you were on a local police department here at the city of Dallas and moving into, transitioning into the federal government, uh, conducting a pretty much a totally different mission, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, your sole purpose is no longer to answer these calls. Uh, so now you're out here apprehending individuals, locating individuals, but you're also in a federal system now, right, as mm -hmm. opposed to the city system. So can you briefly describe that transition? I'm sure there's a lot of people that are going to listen that they do, that it is an aspiration of many to go ahead and move on to the federal government. And uh, I think it would be good just to kind of touch on that, to hear that transition sure. for you. I mean, from where it's like, hey, I went from a from a beat cop to now I'm doing this other job and what the differences were, where the parallels are and yeah. where the differences are in both of them. So the, the unfortunate thing about the federal system, at least in my experience, is you go through, you know, we, I left Southeast, which I consider to be like a just amazing training ground. I would put up my five years in Southeast against, you know, 20 people, 20 years in, in a, um, you know, a, a medium-sized department just because we were, you know, in the summer, you're handling shooting calls one man, you know, maybe two man if you're lucky. Um, and it's just, there's three pages of calls holding. It's nonstop. And then you go to what, in my mind, was this, like, premier law enforcement agency with, you know, like Joe mentioned, 200-plus years of history. And, you know, there's movies on it. And I thought we were going to be Tommy Lee Jones the second I got out there. And you, yeah, you go to this academy, and then you're like, oh, wait, this is still a large government bureaucracy. Like, they hire people that are not, you know, on the level. Um and there was a group of us in the academy that were all prior law enforcement, so we kind of clicked up and uh, made it through there, and you know, had a lot of opinions about people that weren't um, warranted or not. And then the opposite of the PD, you go from you graduate the academy and you go to like night shift in the hood, uh, where you're just nonstop, you're active, you're learning, uh, you really have to drink from the fire hose to. You graduate the Federal Academy, and it's like, okay, well, we're going to stick you in court with prisoners for like 10 to 12 hours a day, and you're going to do prisoner transports, and you're going to hate life. Um, so it was there was a big adjustment there. Uh, that was 20, 
2010, 2011, when I first got to New Mexico. Um, 2011 when I first got there. And I thought long and hard about coming back to the PD uh, just because I was so bored. Um, for someone who likes to stay mentally active and like professionally active, it was very hard to go sit in a courtroom listening to, you know, 20 people get, you know, their initial hearing for like border crossing or, you know, a white collar criminal trial was not exciting. Uh, but the great thing about New Mexico is there was a lot of opportunities. It was a super, I mean, Albuquerque is a super violent city. Um, there was a lot of opportunities before and after uh, your court duties, which, you know, you have to do, like, especially as a new employee, you can't shirk those. Um, There's a lot of opportunities if you were, had a good work ethic to go out before and after hours and assist with warrants. Um, Albuquerque was cool because I could pretty much get, like, the Bernalillo County uh, warrant list for felony offenders and go pull my own cases and work them up. And, uh, you know, if you were proactive, you could do a lot of that there, which was, which was great. Um, and a lot, there was a few former cops there that kind of took me under the wing and, uh, you know, they would show you, like, if you wanted to be proactive, how you could still do that. Transition into this, this realm, it looks like you've been very successful in what you've done. Uh, obviously, you're, you're probably happy that you stuck with it. Yes, very. Yeah, I mean, it's always, <laughs> the comfort is always to come back to what you know, right? So, and I think that's part of it, is we've got to get ourselves in an uncomfortable position to find ourselves where we really need to be, you mm -hmm. know, and then you do that for a few years, and if you didn't like it, then you didn't like it, but... Uh, it seems like you've done pretty good because I see that you're on here as the fugitive task leader, past fugitive task force team leader for the Gulf Coast Gulf Coast region. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's a pretty good, pretty good. Achievement. Oh, it's, I, I love it. It's awesome, my dream honor job. and title probably. Yeah. Um, so when I I was in New Mexico for about three and a half years and got the opportunity to go to, to transfer to Houston. Uh, they had employee mutual transfers back then. I think they still have them now. Where there was a girl in Houston that wanted to go to San Diego. A San Diego deputy wanted to come to Albuquerque so he could be close to his wife's family in Denver. And so I got to move to Houston, which was like unheard of. Um, Houston's a little, like financially, Houston's a gem in the federal system because the COLA is um, set up to benefit the NASA scientists down, oh, wow. down there. So it's probably an artificially inflated COLA rate. It's like 28%, which is equivalent to like San Francisco. I, mean, I think San Francisco's a little higher. Um, so got to go down to Houston. I was there for about three years. I loved it. Um, I still had a lot of those, especially coming into a new office, I had a lot of court responsibilities initially, but they were pretty good about getting you, you know, warrant rotations over there. Um, they were super good to me. I had two critical incidents there, and they like were outstanding. Took care of me. Um, you know, there was no, there's no negative um, press or in, you know employment ramifications. So it was, uh, it was great, and it honestly probably opened the door up for me to go to my position now. You say you're involved in two critical incidents. Mm -hmm. What can you talk about those? Yeah, I can. Um, there was two separate shootings. The first one was on September 11th. Um, I can't remember what year. I'd probably been in Houston like a year because um, I didn't know a ton of people there yet. And I, I had a warrant um, that I had gotten 
it may have been a federal warrant, it may have been a state warrant, and I was out kind of over by the Channel View part of Houston, which is on the east side, and while I was out there, I think I was just, you know, knocking neighbors' doors, saying like, hey, have you seen this guy? Does he still live here? Um, It wasn't a very serious warrant. And when I was out there, um, I was listening to the, the radio chatter that was going on around me and there had been a string of four homicides over the last week to the guy named James Nicholas I want to say his name was um, he had murdered he'd kind of he was parolee or he'd recent been, recently been released from prison he went on like a meth-fueled rampage um, where he had killed four people over the previous week one of which was like a um, shade tree auto dealer that was selling cars out of his house and he had internal security cameras in in the house and the um, suspect was like on camera walking up and putting a pillow over the guy's head and executing him in cold blood. So the dude was like a maniac. Um, And I'm listening on the radio while all that's going on and um, there's some chatter out that's like, hey, you know, we got info he may be at this like 12-plex apartment complex. you know, it's just a building with 12 units in it. It was out in Channel View, which is like kind of pleasant, grovy, lots of trailers. Um, so nice. Yeah, it floods. The streets are very narrow, and there's like huge ditches on either side of them because um, it gets a lot of flooding. Uh, the east part of Houston is not super nice. Um, so I'm over there, and the radio chatter comes out, and I'm like, let me ease over that way. <laughs> um, and so I get over there. I drive, I'm the first one there because I was right around the corner and I drive through the complex and I'm like, I don't see, I think he was supposed to be driving in a stolen tan Honda, one of the ones he had gotten from the, um, the car dealer that he murdered and I'm sitting up there, I'm like, let me drive through, pull back, there's a church right down the street, I'm like, let me pull into the um, gate by the church, I was in a blackboard at the time, so it could blend in pretty decently and it was a pretty working class neighborhood. Uh, like, when we parked down the street, and I'd only been in that uh, office for a few months, and nobody really knew me yet. Like, I'd made friends, um, and, you know, some of the former cops always click up. Uh, so I've been riding, you know, with a few of them and getting to know them, and I see the tan Honda pull through the apartment complex, Um very small is one large building pretty much with 12 units they were all facing one direction and i see it pull through i get on the radio and i'm like hey i couldn't see who was driving it pretty certain your car just pulled in nobody knew me so it was like crickets nobody answered up and because uh, they were like simultaneously looking at two two or three you know different areas of town uh, i knew there's one or two people getting close I said it again, I was like, hey, I think this guy pulled back through, he's driving a tan Honda, Uh, I couldn't see who was driving, and right at that time, I want to say it was one of the local sheriff's investigators, it was on one of the homicides, was driving a black or, you know, a cop car, like a Chevy Impala that's smooth, but it's still got the dumb, like, antenna on the back, so everybody knows you're a cop, Um, and he just, like... He's not part of our team. He's just doing his, you know, hero stuff out by himself. Mm-hmm. Drives through um, the complex, 
And all I see is like the tan hide just humming out of there. I get on the radio. I'm like, hey, this is the dude. Like he's he pulled through. He burned it. Um, we're gonna go find him. Um, so I pull out and I try to catch up to him. And I almost T-bone Dusty, um, who's one of the TFOs down there. He's a rock star. I love him to death. He worked. He still works for TDCOIG. Um, He's, like, very unassuming, little short, red-headed dude. Uh, he's, he's a rock star, though. I had both my critical incidents with him. Um, so Dusty and I get behind the car. I'm He was driving, like, a little GMC terrain, which is, you know, it was goofy. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I've, I've won the, the get-out-of-my-way engagement, um, being in a, a bigger Ford. Um, I get behind him, and we have a chase through Channel View for, like, probably 10 minutes you know we're calling out on the radio i'm trying to get more people to us i think at one point one of the the trooper sergeants kind of got behind us i was kind of unaware of where he was people were coming they just weren't there because we were all spread out all over the city and you can't get anywhere in houston pretty easily um so we pulled down in channel view on a long like dusty kind of industrial road there's like a bunch of pipe distributors back there because it's all you know oil field refinery stuff out there so we pull down this long dusty road and he gets to like not a cul-de-sac but a bend where there's like a wash on the left where he could turn around and he turns around and starts coming back to me playing chicken um and so you know we i block him in um and thinking we're going to do a you know felony stop like you would always do in a situation like that. Like I'm not super in- thrilled about a head-to-head felony stop, but it is, you know, he gets a vote too. Um, he started the engagement. So um, I pull up on him. I'm like throw it in park. Um, and at that point, rounds start coming into my vehicle. Um, he's shooting up and a great thing i was very lucky as i was in a ford truck he was in a honda civic or a cord or something so he was lower than me uh when i like become aware that he's shooting at me i you know i've ducked down i throw it back in a drive and i just ram the fire out of him push him back into one of those ditches that are all over channel view because it floods um, so he goes down into the ditch we embed at the bottom of the ditch um and I fired three separate strings of fire, which I didn't realize until, you know, like it was very, the engagement was probably five to seven seconds. Um, But I fired three distinct strings of fire, which is awesome looking back on it. Like I I was happy with how I performed. Um, I did about five rounds through the windshield, threw open the door from the A pillar another five rounds, and then came out on the door and finished my magazine you know, some, that's not exact, like, I don't have a round count, but I went through an entire magazine, and the reason I remember is because the investigator afterwards asked me, like, hey, how many times did you fire? I said, well, I did a magazine exchange, so I guess 16. Um, I had no, we carried 40s at the time. Um, and so that ended that threat. Um, I think I shot him, like, eight times out of the 16 rounds, which for a law enforcement shooting, yeah. I was pretty happy with that. It's pretty good um, odds. Yeah. And there was a f- large woman um, in the passenger seat that was like his accomplice. She was present at one of the murders, so she got charged with capital murder too. At least one of them. Um, and she didn't get hit, which was like, grace of that God. Like, I don't understand how she didn't get hit. And she's not like an exemplary citizen, but I'm still glad that we didn't have the legality of like dealing with those issues. Um so that was the first shooting. Um, 
you know, he was DRT. Uh, so there was there was no legal issues, no political issues, no like they took great care of me. They actually gave me an award, which was like outstanding. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, so that was the first one, and then like five and a half months later, we're out. On a Friday afternoon, which is when everything stupid always happens, uh, at like 3, because we're supposed to be going home, it's a federal Friday, we're not even supposed to be at work, Um, they had a dude that had um, gone to like his baby mama's new boyfriend's house and was very upset that, you know, he was the new guy in her life, Um, and he ended up stealing his cell phone so he could go through it and shooting the guy paralyzing him um he didn't die but he got like a bullet lodged in his spine um so we ended up and again not my case just going to help um we got to a house kind of on the north side of houston where he was possibly at with his cousin or something two-story single family home garage front where like there was like a bonus room over it or it was almost like a split level house no vehicles there they're like okay we'll probably sit for like half an hour and then it's friday we'll go home you know deal with it later i was sitting down of course ended up being primary eye again somehow um garage goes up a vehicle leaves it's very clearly driven by a female um I'm like, okay, let's, you know, follow her a little bit, so we'll keep somebody on the house, um, you know, we'll break her down a mile down the road once she gets out of sight and talk to her and see if he's in the house. Well, she pulls, like, a mile down the road and pulls into a little convenience store, um, and it's Dusty and I, again, um, pull over the car, like, pull over, break her down. She pulls into the convenience store, Dusty walks up to the driver's side door, I approach the passenger side, and it's her, no front passenger. The rear windows are like that limo tent. It was a small sedan, that limo tent. And I actually credit it to having been a police officer. Like, with that limo tent, you either get him to roll the window down or I just opened it. I opened the door, and I'm confronted with a guy pulling the biggest silver semi-automatic handgun I've ever seen in my life. He had laid down in the back seat like he was in that... Like, laid down kind of in the floorboards, and he's pulling out a silver handgun. Um, and I can see him OODA looping. He's trying to chamber around in, but he's like induced a malfunction in the gun. So he's trying to figure it out. So I've got my problem is I've got the driver in the front driver's seat, I've got him in the back, and immediately to his left behind the driver's seat, there's a baby strapped into a car seat. And then I've got Dusty outside the passenger side window. And Dusty and I both had a shooting five and a half months prior. So we're both dealing with the apprehension of like, really? Are we doing this again? Um, I very much did not want to shoot him. And I gave him every opportunity to drop that gun because I was like, I don't want to go through the legal rigmarole of calling the dang union attorney again. And I'm going to be that dude that is like, you know, got bloodlust and everybody's going to judge me for that. Um... But I've also got a very real problem. Like, and this right. is all going through in the span of like a second, um, that mental processing. And so I'm giving him commands. He hasn't brought the gun up. It's like down between his knees. He's trying to cycle. Um, or I've got my gun pretty much in his face. 
And, uh, but I've got that really bad sight picture where it's like my backstop is human beings, both, you know, I, I carry, I care less about the cousin. I care a lot about Dusty and the baby and they're all in my backstop. So I've got a very unfortunate, and this is all in the span of like a second, second and a half. I'm processing this. Dusty does an outstanding job. He reaches open the back door, uh, the passenger door and leans over the baby and uh, hits him with like one or two rounds in the shoulder blade. So the dude comes out on me and I kind of grab him like by that scruff of your neck area and I'm pulling him out as I'm shooting him because that's like changed my sight picture at that point. So, you know, we've got that right there where he's like trying to figure out he won't drop it. Um, He's trying to figure out how to shoot us. It won't put down the gun, and then we've got this. It was it was a bizarre um, shooting, and then on top of that, like what really kind of irritated me about that is there was a, a local investigator that came in and after like our legal interview um, had the stones to be like, well, what I would have done is I would have backed up and shot through the rear windshield. I was like, well, that's outstanding. That's what you would have done, but I would have murdered a baby. Yeah. So yeah, but uh, Houston took great care of me, um, and it kind of springboarded me to go to the next step in my career, which was awesome, uh, and get some street cred. Right, yeah. And when year did that happen? Um, I can't remember, probably 2014, 2015, somewhere around there. Probably 2014. Yeah, and that's as it slowly as the... Uh, social outlook yeah. on law enforcement yeah. was creeping up and changing. Yeah, and you know, I was kind of lucky that there was no political ramifications with that. That's a great thing about the marshal services. Everyone we're going after has a felony warrant. They're that top tier violent offender. One had paralyzed a dude, one had murdered four people. There weren't like, some of the family was upset on the second one, understandably. Um, they, you know, lost a family member, but there was also not a lot of room for like, Hey, this guy wasn't doing anything wrong. No, he had a felony, aggravated assault, deadly weapon warrant, and he pulled a gun on a cop. Like, right. I'm, I'm sorry that it ended up that way, but it was entirely his decision. Of course. Uh, so there's no bad press. Um, there's no, you know, picketing or burning down of police stations. So we were very, very lucky uh, that we didn't have to deal with that. At that point in your career, had you been in the ring as a professional fighter? Yes. Um, I was retired. I was probably like long retired at that point. Um, so in 2006, I had my first professional MMA fight. That was back when it was a little less civilized. Um, Texas banned amateur MMA um, right around that time frame, and they brought it back pretty soon after my first fight. So I kind of got pigeonholed. Uh, I did not consider myself a true fighter, especially in my first fight. Uh, but I had my first fight in 06 in Austin at the convention center for a small promotion. I want to say it was like XFC or something back then. Like they all had super cool names like Extreme Fighting Championship or something, you know, like that. Something goofy like that. So I got to fight in the convention center. I, was, I think it was the second fight of the night. I believe I was... Yeah, I was still in the Dallas Police Academy when I took that fight, which was a stupid decision. Because um, if I'd gotten seriously injured, it probably would have uh, <laughs> limited my forward movement. Um, oh, I actually separated. Think? Yeah, I actually separated my shoulder in that training camp. Um, 
and finished the academy with a partially separated shoulder, which is awesome. <laughs> and I did that fight. Um, I got like lateral dropped uh, by a, you know, which is a wrestling takedown. I got lateral dropped on that shoulder and it separated it. Uh, thankfully, it was only partially. Um, so I finished the academy. I did that first fight, and it was funny because they they had the the weigh-ins Friday night in Austin, and obviously you can't leave the academy early <laughs> to go have a weigh-in for a you know professional MMA fight that I hadn't gotten approval for. Um, so I had to like specially get a late weigh-in, and I was cutting weight at the academy. Um, and, you know, dehydrated and cutting weight. And I fought at 170. I would cut from about 185. Um, back then I was like 22 or 23. So you could do stuff like that. Like it was, you know, you could do stupid stuff like that to your body uh, at that age. Um, did they know you were fighting then? Did, did you catch no. the staff know? No. Um, I remember like Daryl Harmon mocking me during the academy. Like <laughs> that shit won't work on me. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Little did he know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think the cat got out of the bag at some point. But anyways, that first fight, uh, it was, I do not consider my opponent to be a true pro. I was not a true pro. Um, I went out there and knocked him out in in eight seconds, but it was officially 13 seconds because that was the time the uh, ref stopped him. I swung like a big stupid haymaker and missed him. And like he threw a kick and I saw when he was throwing the kick. I think I saw him when he was warming up. Like every time he threw his kick, um, he would drop his hands. And my coach at the time, my striking coach at the time, um, who's still in Dallas, Tomer Lippin, he's up in Plano or Frisco now. I want to say Plano. Um, runs a great gym. He's like, hey, he's dropping his hands. Um, and so we just, you know, he was, let me know that the right hand would be there. I hit him with my second second uh, punch was a right hand that floored him, um, and I probably showboated too early because he like dropped down and I knew he was out. But like he kind of flash knockout came back to, um, and I had to like hit him again on the ground, and then the ref finally stepped in like because it was just so fast the ref wasn't really probably cognizant of what was going on. But you know sometimes when you hit somebody when they go out. Uh, so I ended up having a few more fights when I was still at Southeast. Um, and the first first fight, uh, I won via knockout. The second fight was in Arlington. I went three rounds. It was a 30-27 uh, fight. I won all three rounds. The kid was super tough. Um, and they actually kind of promoted it as like this guy who didn't like the police versus the police kind of fight. So there was a bunch of his family members down there causing a scene. And it was like a very amateur level um like what you would stereotype is like that you know hokey mma fight where like people in the crowd were fighting and screaming at each other and it was it was fun i mean the dude was super i super tough um i didn't care for him at the time and i still am pretty uh appalled by some of his people's behavior but i mean he was tough um my third fight was against a pro boxer uh, who was a terrible MMA fighter but a really competent striker. And I ended up triangle choking him in the first round um, just because I knew I didn't want to stand with him. Um, he had some hands and I didn't want to really engage in his strength. Uh, my fourth fight was against who I consider to be like a, a true pro. He was 9-1, I was 3-1. And he beat the tar out of me for three rounds. Um, I was really proud of myself. I learned a lot about myself for staying in that fight. 
but he's like just beat the snot out of me. Um, and at that point, I was coming up on changing careers, and I was very burnt out, and I was very tired of everyone asking me when my next fight was. Um, so I kind of stopped training altogether. Like I, I did CrossFit for a few years, um, and just stopped training. And then when I went out to New Mexico, I started getting back into. I, I had a brief return to MMA, and I got uh, a sparring against Tim Means, who was just getting into the UFC then, and he was like 6'5", fought at 170, or at the time he fought at 155, so he was like a scarecrow beanpole dude, and he was rangy, and I'm not tall, um, so I had to get on the inside, and I ended up shooting double leg, and he kneed me in the solar plexus, I couldn't get off the mat for about 10 minutes, I, you know, kind of came over to the side of the ring, leaned up against it, and had a long talk with Jesus, and we said, we're not going to do this anymore, um, so that was the end of my MMA career, pretty much. But I went into, kept doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, competed a lot, won some cool tournaments, um, placed highly at a few, you know, international tournaments, and kept doing that because it's it's a lot more manageable as you age. Um, it's not fun on the body, but it's a lot more fun than getting punched in the face. Okay, so take me back to your critical incidents. Mm-hmm and compare it to the stress of your fights? And do they compare? Are they different? Yes and no. Um, I mean, I think kind of one of the detriments to training a lot in martial arts is you almost become a little too complacent with violence. Um, Like, you, you become so used to just like, okay, this is a bad situation. I'm gonna, you know do what I can to adapt and get through this and, you know, use physicality or guile or some trickery to, you know, win the engagement. But in, like, a critical incident, there's very much, you know, real-world stakes. Like, in an MMA fight, the worst... It's a it's a physical, you know... It's a sport. Um, and there's real, like... I've been... You know, I had my pec torn out of my arm uh, in a jiu-jitsu tournament. Like, there's consequences... Uh, to bad decisions, but it's not like a bullet in the head consequences. Um, so I think, like, yes, they're comparative, they're different. Um, I think combat sports acclimates you to violence um, in a good way. Um, you become very comfortable with violence. And I think for a law enforcement professional, like, you need to be able to wade into that and be comfortable with violence. I don't know if I answered your question. You've had a lot of training. You hold a lot of certificates in different areas. If you were to give advice to some new rookie coming out, mm-hmm. uh, what workout routine would you suggest best prepares you for being a police officer? I have a lot of opinions, um, and I present my opinions. My you know, wife would tell you I present my opinions as facts a lot. Um, so I have opinions <laughs> But I also agree on a certain level, like, the workout that is going to best prepare you is the one you're going to continue doing. Um, if you don't like boxing or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or CrossFit, but you like, you know, swimming or lifting weights, like, you should do what you enjoy because you're going to do it and it's going to keep you in shape. But I do believe, like, a police officer should be competent in a physical altercation. I think you need wrestling. I think you need Jiu-Jitsu. I think you need, you know, a modicum of striking at least. Um, you need to be able to 
be uh, comfortable getting hit and also hitting. Um, you need to be comfortable. You know, jujitsu is like there's this mystique now that you know, oh, we'll just do jujitsu. It's like yeah, it's a tool in the toolbox. It's not going to be the you know you don't always grab a hammer when you need a crescent wrench. Like it's it's good. Um, I think you should do jujitsu, wrestling, maybe some judo, a little bit of boxing. Go to a competent MMA gym. I think you should lift weights. I'm smaller, so I need to be strong. Uh, I need to be, you know, being like a 5'8", 185-pound human being. I need to be strong. Um, you know, if I'm 150 pounds, I'm going to get slung around the room. Um, so I think you should lift weights. I think you should have, you know, a cardio base. I used to run a lot when I was in the first academy. I, You know, I did um, marathons and stuff. And... I, like for me, it's it wasn't great with longevity on my knees. Uh, I had I developed IT band issues. Um, I think you should have cardio, but I also think you should do what you enjoy. You know, I love CrossFit. I don't do it anymore. I program all my own stuff now. Um, so it what it looks like for me now is I do three days a week of like probably an hour of heavy weights, either push-pull movements with squatting and deadlifting, power cleans, uh, full, you know, Olympic cleans, um, and then I'll do, like, a tail-end 15-minute, like, power, uh, like, power cardio, where I'll do, like, pull-ups, plyometrics, um, power cleans, like that typical CrossFit Metcon under the 10-minute time frame, because, like, a competitive jiu-jitsu match is six to eight minutes depending on your age group uh, so I want to thrive in that six to eight minute um, time frame so I you know I want to have the cardio to get through that. and I, I kind of firmly believe too that a police engagement is going to be under that six minute mark so I need to be strong and competent within that time frame I do have a question for you because <clears throat> first of all congratulations on this this is good you've done a lot of good work thanks um, and you survived and I I, I think for me, and I'm glad Misty touched on that. She's really big into the fighting. Mm -hmm. she, she knows that aspect. Um, but these are things you trained for survival. Where does your survival come from? I mean, you've those that one engagement you had. I mean, the first thing you told me sounded like a movie. So, yeah. I mean, those are things you know. You either have aptitude, maybe you're just you're able to uh, come up with these things quickly, be able to flow through it. Rolodex of ideas and whatnot, but it, it, it all comes from survival. So I know you're active in, in, in church. you got a, a good family. Uh, you're very well versed in martial arts, and you've had two different law enforcement careers. So where do you, where do you find the, uh, the, the survival? You, know, you, you obviously have it embedded in you that didn't just show up overnight. Is there something that you, that you some type of... Uh, something you live by or is it something that's um, I mean how would you describe that to somebody because when you're out there in the martial service correct me if I'm wrong I mean sometimes it's just you and somebody else right when you guys are out there trying to look for a couple people before you actually go run some type yeah. of operation and that's yeah. it's not like the police department where we carry 10 bodies or a SWAT team where we've got 12 to 16 coming down to take care of something there's a time when you've been tested obviously you've been tested but something internally inside of you mm -hmm. does that so uh, I think that's multifaceted, and then one of the things, and I will give the Dallas Police Department all the credit in the world for this. When I went through the academy, I thought it was phenomenal. It was ridiculously long at the time; it was nine months. Um, but in training, you have to build those file folders. You know, when I come to this 
occurrence in a professional capacity is there a file folder for that like is shooting through a windshield is that a file folder that i've trained and you know that was something we trained um which is you know to, to like i don't have to exit the vehicle before i can start engaging them uh, and i i feel like in my personal opinion the dallas police department academy was way better than the marsh service academy um which was which was great i'm, I'm glad i went through that um but also on the other side of the fence, like I do have a uh, a faith that developed. Like I didn't get saved until I was about twenty five. Um, I had been on the Dallas Police Department probably three years then. Um, got saved going to a church in Dallas, and I do have what I, I'm lucky is like a kind of late blooming but developed uh, faith, um, and that and my family has you know provided a moral and ethical framework by which I want to live my life, um, regardless of whether or not you're, you know, a, I don't want to say religious or spiritual, but, um, you know, for me, I'm a Christian and regardless of what someone may or may not think about that, like, um, it gives me a moral and ethical code that I live by and strive to be like, I don't, you know, leaning like Calvinist in my faith. Like I, I don't believe that there's, good people like I think we're all inherently flawed you know sinful human beings and having something to strive towards having you know um, a Lord and Savior in Jesus Christ that is the you know ultimate thing I want to strive to be like is good for me because I'm not a great person like I've made some horrible choices throughout my life I've done some things I'm deeply ashamed of and having you know something to strive to be better um, for whatever that means. Having, you know, even if you, that's like the idea of religion is silly to you or foolish, um, having a moral and ethical framework that regardless if you like um, religion or Christianity, I think if we were to look at something like the Ten Commandments, don't steal, don't, you know, don't murder, don't cheat on your wife. Like these are very like everyone can agree that these are good moral and ethical frameworks um so having that for me has been extremely helpful um and that was like something i wish you know had been instilled in me younger uh that's not what the lord had for me so i got to kind of make a lot of foolish decisions when i was young and learn from those uh the hard way which is you know something unfortunately i've done a bunch in life is i have to learn by being hit over the head with bad decisions which are Usually my own doing. I think we can all, uh, <laughs> we can all say we've done those. Oh, that's yeah, for sure. I've got a treasure chest full yeah. of bad, yeah. bad choices. But you do. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I, and then I have a few of those treasure chests in a closet hidden. Yeah, exactly. Um, what kind of mental toll if did these critical incidents take on you? You know, it's funny. We they they're doing a like stress mental health evaluation now in my current job uh, which evaluates like hey you know what are all these <laughs> stressful incidents you've been through you know professionally personally whatever and they came to the one it's like you know all the traumatic events you could have been through and I remember we were driving out here and I was doing it on my phone because uh, I didn't want to bring my laptop on this trip um, and my wife drove like the last hour or two of the six hour drive and I'm going through there and there's like 30 options like seen somebody die, committed an extreme act of violence against another person, witnessed a suicide, like all these things. 
And there's like 30, 40 options on there. And like the whole thing is clicked except for like five of them. And it's, you know, it's really like, and I don't think that's me, like my career. I think if an average police officer in the hood over the course of a 20 year career will see all these horrible things, they will deal with them. And it's like, you have to be able to have, that's why cops drink. That's why cops cheat on their wives. That's why cops are not always like, you know, well-behaved. Uh, that's why we, you know, only can really open up to other cops um, with people we trust, with people that have been through. And I would, you know, assume I was never in the military and I would very much assume in that community it's the same. And those are people that, you know, see a lot more violence in certain cases than, you know, we've ever seen. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a, there's a tre- treasure trove of traumatic incidents you get to witness. And it's, you know, human beings are very versatile and, you know, can adapt, but, like, you have to adapt to that or it will, it will break you. Well, yeah, and everybody reacts differently. You can have 10 different people dealing with similar incidents and they're going to, mm-hmm. you're going to have probably yeah. 10 different yeah. PTSD. It's like pin, little pinpricks. Mm-hmm. We daily go in yeah. and we see terrible things and hear terrible things from people. We see people treat each other like, yeah. like you can't imagine and... Even it doesn't even have to be a critical incident. All that shit just finally stacks on and stacks on and stacks yeah. on and, and wears on you. And I, I do credit like both the training academies I've gone through for, like they, we had gotten to the point as a law enforcement community where we had acknowledged like, hey, you're gonna have these mentally and emotionally challenging things. Like we're gonna prepare you for, you know, the taking of a human life when you've built that file folder for. These are the criteria in which I'm willing to kill another human being. Um, you know, if we meet all these criteria, I'm willing to kill you. And I'm fine mentally and emotionally, spiritually with that. Like, I sleep like a baby. Not because they weren't human beings and they didn't matter, but it's like you had met the criteria for what allows me legally, morally, ethically, spiritually to kill you. Um, and, you know, I'm very grateful that those academies had kind of built that file folder because they didn't used to do that. Yeah, that's the problem, too, is that they, they prepare you physically for these things and train you, but... The problem we're seeing now, if you look at the suicide rate for law enforcement, it's, it's through the roof. Mm-hmm. Same with fire services. Um, and that's accredited to uh, our inability to accept that and, and break that stigma. Uh, the academy should have something in there mm-hmm. that uh, provides people with a service that allows individuals to know what your outlet is. Have a doctor come in there and talk to you and talk to you about the stressors what cortisol is, what all mm-hmm. these things are and these factors and this, this criteria that you that you may begin to meet. And when you meet that, these are the things that you probably want to do, right? Uh, not everybody is okay with, you know, taking a life. Not everybody's okay with working these streets here for 30 years, whether it be because of what they witnessed, experienced, but that on top of that, what they had to deal with at home, right. their personal lives, their financial stabilities, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think that's something that uh, needs to be worked on uh, by us as a law enforcement community and by a group. We're starting to try to push in that direction, so hopefully we can manage that piece. But uh, yeah, yeah the, the Assist the Officer Foundation, we're, we're just starting up a peer support group, and we, uh, Josh and I attended a training in, in, at the Frisco Star uh, a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic, and we we're in the process of actually trying to put together something for uh, from the ATL side. Because we really believe it's needed. Because mm-hmm. um, 
we listened to a panel of uh, of ten different first responders. Ed Lujan went, and uh, you're going to hear his his episode and his story. And then we heard firemen, and everybody had their own unique story of just traumatic PTSD, yeah. and they all had their own. It didn't even have to be a critical incident that that, that caused it. It was just a constant negativity. Oh yeah, and roller coaster of, uh, of stressors. I mean, you walk into a corrosive environment every single day, and if you're not very careful about it, you're gonna, it's going to splash on you, and you're going to walk home with it. You're going to take it home to your families. You know, I think that's one of the goals that we have, and I know why Joe started wanting to do this, and you touched on it earlier. Hearing your stories, hearing Misty's story last episode we did, hearing Ed's, cops need to hear these things because... People in general, we think, oh, we're the only ones going through mm-hmm. some kind of bad thing. But then when we hear other people talking about it, it makes us cope and grieve better. And, and I think that's one of the big goals we got going on and moving forward with this thing we're starting. So I think the stuff you said is great, and I think the cops need to listen. And the fact that they want to be feel safe around other cops, hearing those stories is like a big step. So I think your stories... yeah. You know, it, uh, are going to be yeah. fundamentally great for these guys to learn how to grieve and realize they're not the only ones going through and that you, stuff and have better understanding of why they might do something. Yeah, you, you touched upon it and you said it perfectly. Like, the the great lie, um, and, you know, in a, as a Christian, like, the great lie of the enemy, Satan, whatever you want to call it, great lies that, and I see this with my, my wife going through, like, the struggles of being a mom and doing that effectively. The great lie is whatever it is, you're going through it completely alone. You know, as a mom, like the great lie is that nobody else is having those kids that are misbehaving and I'm a failure as a mom and I'm not doing a good job. Like, that's a hard job. And the great lie as a cop is like, I'm going through this alone. My family doesn't get it. My friends don't get it. These people at work kind of get it, but, you know, I can't be emotionally vulnerable with them because then they're going to judge me. And that's that great lie is that I have to compartmentalize this, wall it off. It's going to get worse and worse and worse until it finally boils over. Chris, uh, that's a hell of a way to end it. Uh, I want to thank you for coming out here, uh, coming back to Texas from the community town. Uh, I'm going to have you on again for uh, part two. But I want to thank you for everything. Thanks for being a great friend and um, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, thanks, Chris, for coming on, man. Thanks. I really appreciate you swinging by here, and thanks for what you're doing right now. We appreciate your service. I'm amazed anyone wants to listen to your talk. <laughs> well, I actually did before you make me feel better. Yeah. Thank you, buddy. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs., hey, mister, I'll see this all the way through. Sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. Down when you're lonely, I'll pull you up. Life leaves you heavy when the going gets tough. I'll be your shoulder, together we'll run up from the bottom. Yeah, we'll Hey brother, hey sister, 